0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: I'm Caleb Zachron, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Political Science. Today I'm speaking with Paul Kenny, professor of political science at the Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences at Australian Catholic University. Paul is the author of Why Populism? Political Strategy from Ancient Greece to the Present. This book takes a novel approach, not asking why voters might prefer populists over other types of political leaders, but rather, why politicians might choose populism as a strategy. As Paul puts, this is a book about the supply side of political choices, not the demand side. Paul, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. You know, th- th- this was a, r- a really fascinating book, and I what I appreciated about about it most was that you took a, a topic that is much discussed and you you flipped it on its head uh, and really went through so many examples. Uh, yeah, which has just not really strengthened the approach that you you offer. Uh, but before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
0: So I'm a political scientist and an economist by training, and I try to bring uh, both of those uh, kind of um, disciplinary lenses to this book. And, and I think that will come out as we discuss it. Um, so I went to Yale to do my uh, PhD in political science. And um, while I was there, I became fascinated by, by India and its transition uh, to democracy. And that really got me uh, interested in the topic of uh, populism. So when I went to um, India to do my research, I became fascinated by Indira Gandhi, who's uh, one of the populists that I uh, have written about in the past. And um, that's sort of been the trajectory that's brought me to uh, populism in the West as well. And for this particular book, how did how did the idea for it come about? So uh, building off of what I what I just uh, mentioned about uh, writing for, of uh, Indira Gandhi, uh, she was never the most... Um, Sort of the hottest topic. Whenever I would talk to audiences in the West about this, it seemed like just sort of some historical uh, concern, or or maybe that populism was just a problem for uh, countries like India or or those in Latin America in particular, um, and they couldn't understand how my approach, uh, bringing this economic lens to it, uh, would apply in uh, somewhere like Western Europe or North America. Um, so uh, when I tried to talk to audiences about this and and sort of suggest, oh, this could really apply. Um, that really uh, ended up pushing me towards writing about it. I, I actually had to show it uh, to put it on paper, um, and that's what this book tries to do.
1: So, you know, for for those of us who are in America, populism has been associated very significantly with Donald Trump. Uh, but it, a, as you discuss in the book, populism isn't just uh, one political program. It's not one political leader. Uh, it has many different forms, different faces that it's taken throughout history. So. Uh, You know, in as general sense as possible, how would you describe or define populism?
0: So for me, populism uh, is not an idea. Uh, It's not an ideology. It's not even a style exactly, as some other people have suggested. For me, it's a political strategy. uh, And it's one in which you get this personalistic or charismatic leader who tries to appeal directly to the people. Uh, So it incorporates this notion of the people that's central to populism, but it's about something that political leaders do exactly something they say, it's not something they believe, but it's the way in which they try to mobilize the people directly. And what I mean by that is that they don't use uh, political parties, they don't use um, patronage, they don't try to buy votes exactly, they don't try to um, bring people into these complex political organizations. What they try to do is talk to them directly. Today, obviously, they talk to them directly through things like Twitter, through the mass media, uh, going back a little bit through radio, going back before that through pamphlet, papers, going back before that uh, through speeches, especially uh, in the public sphere. So populism is a way of doing politics and it's trying to, um, shall we say, um, outflank or outmaneuver or go over the heads of the political establishment to get this direct rapport between the leader and their followers. You mentioned uh, briefly in that answer. Uh, two other
1: political strategies, a strategy that you might refer to or as you refer to in the book as a, a programmatic political strategy and also the patronage strategy. Uh, and I think that this is this kind of, uh, these three are, are really useful. Uh, so I, I was wondering if you could you could compare the populist political strategy uh, to the programmatic political strategy and the patronage strategy.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, you know, I'm not the first to kind of coin these ideas or, or forms of political organization. Really, it goes back to, um, to Max Weber, uh, the famous uh, political sociologist. Um, and the idea here is that you can have um, uh, a programmatic or bureaucratic type of linkage. And in the West, this is the one that we tend to think about. It's the way uh, hi- historically, at least in the post-war or, or most of the 20th century period, I should say, um, the uh, classic American political parties have been uh, organized. Um, And the idea of a bureaucratic party is that uh, roles matter more than individuals. And you have things like a party whip, uh, you have uh, party leaders, uh, you have offices within the party. And there's a kind of ladder that people progress uh, up through the bureaucratic party. Um, Externally, the party is linked to voters through organizations. So uh, on the left, you have the classic organizations like labor unions in particular. On the right, you tend to have uh, sort of agricultural kind of unions, farmers' unions, you have business associations, and especially you have churches. Um, and so bureaucratic uh, political uh, organizations, or programmatic ones, as I sometimes call them in the book, um, they're very uh, um, sort of uh, you know, well-organized, uh, hierarchical, and deeply institutionalized. Um, and this stands in pretty stark contrast to the um, sort of charismatic or direct linkages you get uh, with a populist uh, political leader. The other type of organization I discuss is a patronage-based political party, and historically these are probably the most common. That programmatic party structure uh, that we see in North America and Western Europe is the more unusual one. Uh, Patronage-based parties rely on uh, clientelism to link with voters. Essentially, that means they buy votes. Um, Sometimes this is literally like handing out cash before uh, an election. In places like Indonesia, they call this the morning attack. They give out these brown paper envelopes full of... Uh, money. Um, and then you, you also then get brokers uh, or or people who hand out the cash and who hold this block of voters. They then in turn sell those blocks of votes higher up uh, and in turn uh, until you get uh, to the political candidate uh, themselves. Um, so it's a kind of a complex sort of organization in which these factions uh, are, are uh, brought together through the distribution uh, of money. Very often uh, you'll find that uh, This cash is built from public uh, sources, so uh, people will use, you know, control over a ministry, control over some particular government funds to build up their own political uh, faction. And, you know, historically, we've seen this in the United States, especially in the 19th century, uh, but it's the sort of um, modus operandi of most new political parties around the world after democracy uh, tends to be introduced. Um, Populism then is is quite a contrast to this as well, in that uh, it doesn't rely on this sort of pyramidal or feudal sort of uh, structure in which, you know, uh, kind of resources flow down the network and votes or support flow back up. What populists try to do is to link directly with voters and cut out all of those middlemen. So Indira Gandhi, who I mentioned, uh, Prime Minister of India, she literally said she was going to go over the heads of the old party bosses and link directly with the people and the problem for uh, a political leader with uh, who relies on patronage is that uh, a lot of these brokers are quite unreliable you can't trust them uh, they'll very often sell their votes to more than one candidate at the same time um, so here we start to see the the elements of my argument which is that populism uh, tries to lower the cost of winning votes
1: yeah I, I want to follow up on that and and the sort of the economic framework that you you take to analyzing uh, populism and different political strategies. And you use a, uh, an essay or, or ideas promoted by Ronald Coase um, about transaction costs. I was wondering if you could describe what
0: transaction costs are uh, and how they appear in politics. Yeah, it took me, uh, quite a while to arrive at this framework. Uh, I'd written another book called, uh, Populism in Southeast Asia. And I, in that book, I, would suggested that populism was a low cost strategy, but people would ask me how, why, what, what makes it lower cost. And, um, then I started to go back, uh, through some of the, the writings that I uh, covered in my economic training and, uh, COSA's, uh, structure really appealed to me, um, the idea of transaction cost economics, um, shifts what we normally think about costs uh, a little bit and in a very important way for politics. So um, I, I use some some economic examples or examples from the business world to, to uh, help explain what I mean by transaction costs. So if we think about an organization or a firm like Ford, um, we can think about every product they make as having two types of cost. So the first type are the sort of direct costs that we can usually think of. These are things like uh, the cost of the metal that goes into the car, the cost of the rubber, uh, the cost of uh, paying um, uh, uh, suppliers of you know electricity and on all of the other kind of elements that will go into uh, physically producing a uh, car. But um, the costs for producing a car uh, are also uh, indirect. And these are kind of transaction costs. What we mean by this are the costs of uh, uh, making and enforcing uh, contracts and search costs. So. These transaction costs refer to things like every time you want to uh, produce the car, you need to hire uh, labor uh, to um, engage in physical activity. So each time you wanted to produce a car, if you had to go out, find a particular laborer with the specialized skills that entails a search cost, uh, then you have to uh, uh, make an infor- an, uh, a contract for that laborer to perform a particular activity. Then you've got to follow up to make sure that they have performed it exactly as you want and all of this is, it entails a great amount of cost for you uh, as the person trying to produce a good. In this case, it's far cheaper for you to just uh, hire someone to perform a whole range of tasks that involves just one contract. So here you get uh, the sort of in classic employment uh, relationship. So it lowers transaction costs by making just one contract instead of uh, many. When we bring this over to politics, um, we can think about uh, the... the the currency, if you like, as being votes. So the question is, you know, what are the transaction costs involved in winning a vote in winning support? And, you know, with, with patronage, with clientelism, that cost is very obvious. Very often it is literally handing out uh, an envelope full of cash or literally, uh, you know, providing a a job, which comes with uh, some sort of remuneration to somebody who will support you, Um, but there's an indirect uh, cost or a transaction cost, even with something like clientelism. So. Uh, somebody will promise to uh, give a vote in return for uh, you know, $5, $10, but how do you ensure that they've actually done it? You need to be able to monitor people, uh, and that monitoring is a transaction cost. Uh, you need to be able to enforce the fact that you have uh, bought those votes. So not only are voters often disloyal, but so are the brokers, as I mentioned, um, and when you bring all of that you know, up a scale to the county level, to the uh, state level and so on, the transaction costs uh, for patronage are really quite substantial. So what a populist uh, will try to do is to lower those transaction costs, to lower uh, the cost of uh, winning votes. Um, and what we'll see, uh, you know, as we discuss some other cases, is that they do this uh, fairly successfully. So even though uh, things like uh, television advertising do cost money, they cost less than uh, building a party or than uh, buying votes. So the,
1: the first examples that you look at are uh, examples of populists in ancient times and I was you know I, I think it's it's always important uh, to to show this especially when we're talking about modern day polit- you know political issues. Uh, it's always great to go back as far as you can I think and 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 find some of the earlier precedents uh, and then compare them because oftentimes they can be extremely illuminating. So what did populism look like in ancient times?
0: yeah for me it was it was you know really quite fun uh, to to go back and and uh, read some of the original sources and see could i find populism in the the earliest democracies so um you, you know we we know that um, there were many uh, city states in uh, ancient Greece that um uh, had democratic or quasi democratic structures but the one we know most about obviously uh, is Athens that's really where most of the source material uh, uh survives so i can really only talk about ancient uh, ancient Athens and then uh, eventually moving on to Rome In Athens, you you had something like a participatory democracy in the sense that all adult uh, men, free men um, uh, could participate uh, in the political process. This developed sort of gradually uh, over time. It it shifted from an oligarchy where you had uh, an elite that controlled politics to becoming more participatory and and uh, um, a greater number of uh, policy areas, especially over war and over taxation, moved into uh, the assembly uh, in Greece, and regular people had an actual say in in how politics uh, worked. This isn't to say that you know every single uh, you know Joe Soap could uh, stand up and and make a speech. That's not how things worked. The elite uh, still were the ones who led. Um, but it meant that they spoke directly in the assembly uh, to uh, thousands of uh, other gathered uh, men, and this meant that uh, the strength of a particular speech uh, could actually sway uh, the vote. It was quite a, a sort of uh, emotional uh, process, and we hear you know, stories of uh, you know, brilliant speakers in ancient Greece who were able to sway the crowd one way or another uh, to their particular policy. So it catered exactly to this type of charismatic leader. There were no political organizations, even though there was possibly a little bit of vote buying. Most of this uh, occurred with um, uh, people just sort of shifting their allegiance according to who uh, would make uh, the better speech at a particular moment. And, you know, often this was you know lamented by the elite because it created the opportunity for uh, rabble rousers to sort of come along to, to make these sort of dramatic speeches to whip people up. Uh, especially uh, when it came to um, declaring war. When you move on to Rome, uh, things look a little bit different. You do have uh, the forum. There were public speeches uh, in in the uh, Cantiones, but um, these operated slightly differently in that uh, policy was still decided uh, within the Senate, uh, and you had uh, a very clear uh, executive uh, leadership in the consuls the, the famous two uh, dual consulship that uh, characterized um uh, the roman political system um and so it was uh there was much more of a separation between the political leadership uh, and the people it was you know very clearly filtered through this uh you know aristocratic uh, uh senate but this isn't to say that the people had uh, no say whatsoever so you know the mob or the crowd had uh, Still gathered in Rome, it could still exert a force, but very often it was more on the edges of legality. So you have uh, political uh, outsiders who try to use the crowd, who try to use this popular support um, to pressure the elite uh, to get their way, to to worm their way up the political ladder. So the famous examples are uh, beginning with the Gracchi and going all the way up to uh, Clodius uh, towards the end, around the time of uh, Caesar.
1: The third chapter of your book looks at populism during the American and French revolutions. Uh, who were the, the big populists of these periods and how did they compare to uh, the populists of ancient times?
0: So the American and French revolutions are, uh, its fascinating how they occur so close in time, but they really transpire very, very differently. Uh, the American Revolution for, for all its um, sort of ideological fervor uh, was in a way quite conservative. And it doesn't really generate, um, uh, any successful populists. Uh, the, the, uh, colonial era elite is really the same elite that, uh, continues to rule, uh, throughout, um, the, the revolutionary period and then on into independence, so we don't really see any populists until the middle of the 19th century, um, in the, uh, American case. France is very different because it's a much more, um, uh, revolutionary, if you like revolution. Uh, this is in the sense that, uh, it completely overturns the political order. So the aristocracy uh, rather than being the elite that continues into, uh, the new period, uh, is completely overthrown. Um, and so they, some of them enter into, um, the new legislative assemblies, but very quickly they're outflanked by this new bourgeoisie. These are a sort of professional class, um, without the old kind of patronage networks of the aristocracy. And they mobilized very, very different. So we get immediately characters like uh, Danton, uh, like Robespierre, who people probably would know better. And what they sought to do was to uh, appeal directly to the crowd and especially to directly to the crowd uh, in Paris. Um, and this is where just even a few thousand people uh, mobilized on the streets um, could cause a whole lot of mayhem. Um, not just the, the, the storming of the Bastille, um, but very often they could appear. Uh, right outside the legislative assembly and be able to pressure uh, uh, the elite into um uh, doing what the crowd wanted and 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 leaders like Dantau could channel this sort of uh, popular uh, energy even if they couldn't always uh, control it.
1: I, w- I want to ask a question uh you can you can also describe uh this you know this, some of the examples that we've already discussed but you can pick up on any uh examples that you think might be relevant on just the relationship between populism and democracy, uh, and whether or not populism is a, is a more, uh, it's a true form of democracy or whether populism is a, uh, I, I don't know what the term would necessarily be, but a, a kind of corrupted form
0: of democracy. Yeah, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. And it's sort of something I'm working on, on more now. It's not exactly something that I, I address in full in the book, but my, my thoughts on it are this, that, um, yeah, in some ways populism can be. Uh, pro-democratic, and, and that's something that I do talk about in the book, and that's where um, it's all, populism is often a tool of the outsider, so uh, very often elites, the wealthy, but not those who are exactly in power. If you're in power, you have very little uh, motivation to engage in that kind of populism. You don't want to be whipping up the crowd. You want to be demobilizing the crowd. Um, so populism is a tool of, of the outsider, and in that sense, it can be democratizing, so uh, very often, what they'll try to do is to bring in uh, new voters to expand the franchise, and even with uh, you know Andrew Jackson, who we might talk about uh, a little bit further, um, he's able to come to power in in uh, or to to uh, to win power in the late eighteen twenties. Because the franchise has expanded, and so as democracy expands, as there are more new voters, as more new voters are mobilized and brought into the system, and these were the people that Jackson appealed to, especially those in the West, um, uh, that has a democratizing effect. More people are participating, um, and this is something that populists will often try and do, so where there's a kind of a neglected part of the electorate, or a or, uh, uh, A body of people that hasn't yet got the franchise, whether because of age or because of some kind of citizenship requirement, populists are often the one to uh, push to get them involved. And that goes all the way back uh, even to the Gracchi uh, in Rome as well. They sort of made themselves the voice of this kind of neglected or or ignored people. Um, So that's the sort of potentially good side of of populism but um for me uh, ultimately it, it ends up ha- generally having more negative consequences and that's because um populists often run sort of roughshod over uh the institutions that check the majority will so you know we could go back to 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 madison or others who who saw these kind of uh, they're often called liberal institutions but What's meant by them is institutions that uh, um, prevent the majority from uh, dominating over a minority. So as uh, Madison um, kind of hypothesized that you, know, you could have the 51% enslave the other 49%. Um, and then once that 49% uh, is enslaved, a majority of the remaining 51% could enslave the rest again until you basically have uh, a tyranny of a, a tiny uh, few. So you always need some kind of protections for any democracy uh, to work, some protections for the minority. They have to be uh, able to organize politically so that someday the minority can itself uh, become uh, the majority. What populists try to do is to, um, they, they try to, um, you know, mitigate this checking or balancing role of political institutions. So they'll very often privilege the executive over uh, the legislature. To say that, well, look, I, as one individual, embody the people's will, and these institutions, like an independent court and independent legislature, uh, are illegitimate. They don't uh, embody the people's will. So that's what makes populism, for me, dangerous to democracy.
1: What is the 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 sort of uh, uh, sense in which populists are able to pick up on uh, you know this kind of dual duality of both both? actually being popular, but also then uh needing to take apart uh the the sort of the, the checks as you were saying uh in order to maintain their power.
0: Yeah. Populists are are, you know, they're often just sometimes called authoritarians or quasi-authoritarians or, you know, illiberal democrats or these set of funny kind of hybrid um uh terms because they seem to sit somewhere between democracy and authoritarianism. But um very often, they really are democratic when they come to power. They uh, they win elections. But as you, you pointed out in your question there, they, they typically win when just a plurality is enough. They are rarely popular enough or, or rarely able to get uh, uh, sort of genuine majorities uh, in the initial uh, instance. Um, and in, in Trump's case, you had an extremely divided uh, field and he's able to win with the smallest plurality of, of any uh, victor in, in, uh, since the GOP introduced the primary process. And so by winning, needing to win fewer votes, this obviously lowers the cost for Trump. Uh, so the fewer votes that you have to, to, to win, the less it costs. So, um, uh, and the more cheaply you can win those votes, the, the less it costs uh, as well. Um, things change sort of when they, they get into power, um, what they want to do in that case then is to, um, deal with the fact that they don't have an organization to control their uh, supporters. So unlike a political party where people are members of that party, they, uh, you know, say they join the labor party, they they go to the labor pub, they're in the labor union. Uh, they live in a set of row houses where all their neighbors are members of this union. They all vote the same way. So it's a very sort of uh, social process and people are deeply embedded into it. And they're gonna vote that way pretty much all the time. But populists can't rely on that because they rely on things like television. These are very weak links uh, to voters. So they can't be sure that those same voters are gonna continue to turn out next time. So populism is not a very good way of keeping voters. It's a good way of initially getting them. Um, And so because of that, uh, populists have this great temptation to uh, sort of erode democracy to prevent uh, another um, another populist or another political party from uh, beating them at the next election. So in, in so many cases, what you see is populists start to chip away at the ability of the opposition to uh, organize after they've got into power. And it tends to be the case that the longer they're there, the more successfully they're able to chip away uh, at those um, constraints on executive power and on the ability of the opposition to organize.
1: How, how might we think about different types of populists like Trump on the right, Bernie Sanders on the left and, you know, Emmanuel Macron in the center.
0: So for me, the kind of, uh, more usually described political you know, ideology, whether it's in economic terms on the left or right or center, um, or whether they're, you know, very obviously nationalist or not, you know, these things are, are sort of, um, additions to populism. Populism is a way of doing politics and we see populists, uh, adopt different kind of strategies, different messages in different contexts, but the method is the same. So for instance, to take a very different example, you've got Rodrigo Duterte uh, in the Philippines. So for him, uh, he triumphed on a law and order message, well, what he calls law and order, but essentially a tough on uh, drugs and a tr- tough on drug crime uh, sort of message. So there was no particular nationalist message. There was no particular economic message. Uh, but the way in which he mobilized uh, supporters was a hundred percent populism. Um, you know, with uh, with other uh, with other leaders, you see different kinds of of messages from from Hitler on his rise to power, um, or from from Bernie Sanders on the you know far left, emphasizing a, a, a redistributionist economic message that has more in common with the likes of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, where you have those uh, again, sort of uh, on the on the. On the right, or even who are quite unclear in their messaging, uh, like Donald Trump, who, who tend to stress more um, nationalistic uh, sort of messages uh, than any particular economic one. So the actual content of the populist appeal for me is quite open. Um, it's you know talk, if you like, is is cheap, and they'll say what they need to say. And Trump himself uh, was a great experimenter. He would throw out different messages to see which one stuck. And he'd continue with those. So for me, populists are are, are sort of um, uh, really um, empty when it comes to uh, content. They'll they'll fill it with whatever they need to to mobilize the crowd, and they'll often experiment to see with what works.
1: Are there other ways in which you take are taking sort of economic ideas or frameworks to understanding populism that we haven't already discussed?
0: Yeah. So there's a few that I throw in uh, to the book that that, that help explain particular um, um, particular dynamics that. Uh, um, Make it possible for populists to win. So, you know, um, one of the one of the good examples I think is, uh, you know, why would clientelism or patronage uh, be successful at one point uh, in keeping populists out, and then uh, seemingly all of a sudden fail to allow populists in? So we could look at something like um, the Italian political system. This was the classic uh, clientelistic or patronage based political system. You have the Democratic Christian Democratic Party. Uh, That's the dominant political force from the post-war period right the way through up until uh, 1990 or so. And then at this point, Silvio Berlusconi uh, bursts onto the political scene. So why does the uh, Italian political system uh, implode? We know in that case that there was a big corruption uh, scandal that the the, the, um, uh, members of the Christian Democratic Party were um, uh, just sort of deeply engaged in... uh, um, corrupt relationships with um, uh, with uh, businessmen uh, you know buying votes engaged with the mob It is was incredibly corrupt and and the Italian political system just uh, it, you know implodes at this point the DC uh, completely vanishes all of the old political parties essentially vanish and uh, Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia uh, comes along in the mid-1990s to take over and Italy has never really had a stable party system uh, since and, and we've seen this sort of recurrent emergence of populism and um, but why does the political system collapse in the first place? So um, economics, I think, can can give us some insight into this. So why is it that um, in early phases, uh, patronage works? Well, it's fairly low cost, and most of those costs can be borne uh, from uh, the exchequer, from public sources. So you're able to provide jobs. You're able to uh, maybe provide some kind of cash for some other sort of benefits or a promise of, of um intervening with the bureaucracy in some way. So candidates in a party can use these sort of inducements, uh, typically financial, but sometimes other inducements to keep a block of uh, supporters together. And this can kind of cohere into a patronage party as these factions are uh, bought together by giving out uh, ministries and uh, other public contracts and so on. The problem though, as I mentioned, is that brokers or these guys in the middle uh, are often disloyal. So you're willing to take your faction and your block of voters and sell it to another leader. So what you see in systems like the Italian one is that very few leaders can stay at the top for long because factions are willing to sell their block of votes uh, to another leader who'll give them a better ministry, uh, a better ministry, for instance, where they can bilk off more funds. Uh, and so you see in the Italian system that, you know, government's prime ministers basically change, you know, almost one a year or even more than one a year. Uh, because of this sort of disloyalty of those even from within their own party. And because brokers are uh, sort of willing and able to uh, be so disloyal, the cost of buying their votes tends to ratchet upwards. Um, And you tend to have this sort of uh, uh, effect whereby the cost of keeping power goes up and up and up and up, which increases the amount of corruption uh, over time to be able to continue to buy off these voters. So the Italian political system has this um, quality where the cost of staying in power goes up and up and up and up and up and then rival political parties come along sometimes they break away coalitions uh, uh, are then developed between uh, factions and different patronage parties and the cost of this continues to go uh, up and up and up and up and eventually it becomes uh, unsustainable and in the italian case it just collapses uh, under its own weight where the corruption is so uh, out of control that it can no longer uh, be hidden uh, and then this creates the opportunity for someone like Berlusconi uh, to be able to say, hey, look, I'll sweep out the old uh, elite. Um, don't mind these corrupt guys. We'll just have this direct link uh, between uh, me, the clean, you know, upstanding uh, leader, and, and you, the supporters. And this is this sort of kind of classic uh, dynamic whereby the, the, the costs of patronage have this uh, upward ratcheting uh, quality uh, that populists can promise to sort of cut through that uh, kind of Gordian knot.
1: My last question is is a more general question just about the present moment and the current state of populism um obviously 2016 you know brexit and trump and and other uh elections it was was kind of the maybe a, a peaking moment uh, for for populism and now it seems like populism uh, the wave may have crested uh do, do, do you get that without having you know without asking you to predict? the future or anything like that, uh, do you get the sense or the feeling that that populism is something that is going to uh, maybe for in the short term recede into the past? Or do you think that uh, populism is something that is still alive and well, and that is something that could easily
0: uh, rear its head again? Uh, unfortunately, I think it's the latter. I think populism is pretty here to stay in the short term, because if we look at you know, what are the alternatives? Um, you know, uh, patronage as I've, I've, just been describing is, uh, quite cost ineffective. It's not really a way to manage, um, democracy, uh, in the West. It's, it's far too expensive. Very few, um, credible political actors can really pursue that strategy, um, in the West anymore. Um, what then of, of bureaucratic parties? Well, um, they're really not in a good condition, as, as a lot of uh, other writers who I draw on in the book have, have talked about. So party memberships have you know absolutely tanked uh, everywhere. Uh, Peter Mayer, the uh, very famous Irish political scientist, um, had written about this um, a long time ago, long ago as long goes the 90s and the 80s. Um, the political parties were, were really hemorrhaging. Uh, members, labor unions are um, uh, really sort of still in decline, not just in America, but in Western Europe. And so and, and churches, of course, for those parties on the right, Christian Democratic parties, they've been uh, really losing members uh, quite substantially. So this has created a, a very large body of voters that are no longer really attached in a deep way to political parties. So they'll vote for a liberal party one day, a conservative party the next, um, or maybe something more radical in the British case like UKIP, uh the, in the election after that. So, because there's very little loyalty now, and an embedded sort of uh, loyalty in a, in a, I mean, in a social kind of way that people have real deep links to political parties, because that's um, uh, become a thing of the past. And we haven't developed new kinds of links between people and parties. I think populists are always going to find a way in because these voters can be mobilized uh, quite cheaply. So, you know, some some popular celebrity uh, who's already well known someone with an awful lot of money uh, who can quickly develop name recognition, um, it's very easy for them to to win over these weakly attached sort of voters. So um, until the prospects for for new kinds of party, um, not that they have to be exactly like the, the ones of old, but other new kinds of more stable political linkages that um, reflect the way that we live and work today, uh, until those kind of uh, political links develop, Uh, where perhaps people have more, uh, ownership over their party, where they can participate, um, in a, in a real sort of way in the organization and the ongoings of their party, uh, perhaps using new kinds of technology. Um, when those things are sort of developed and people, uh, become more bonded to new style political parties, then I think maybe you could see this, um, uh, appeal or, or cost effectiveness of populism start to ebb away. But for the present period, while, um, Parties remain so deeply unpopular. Um, I think it means that the populist, uh, the populist wave uh, may not even have crested yet.
1: In the wake of this project, are you continuing an examination of populism, uh, or are you exploring any other new
0: topics? So both. Uh, I'm. I'm also writing another new short book, uh, "Populism: What Everyone Needs to Know," for Oxford. Um, so, this is going to be a shorter uh, examination and and something that uh you know reassesses the the just massive literature out there on populism. so I hope it'll be useful pe- to people as a sort of first way in but I want to talk in that book not just about um how populists come to power as I do in this book uh, but also about what populists do when they get to power so it'll be a kind of you know broad examination of the whole uh, kind of populist phenomenon um but beyond that, I'm also looking at other issues like um Uh, personalist dictatorship which is a little bit related but you know how how dictators manage to um, use institutions and use rules to uh, um, keep power and to personalize power so there's a bit of a paradox there that um, uh, again we see we see dictators follow some of these economic rules, if you like, so to 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 use the institutions that are there to their advantage in the most cost-effective um, way. But again, most of my research, I could, I could talk about others, but uh, it again tries to apply this some of this microeconomic um, theoretical lenses to political questions.
1: Wonderful. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being a guest.
0: Thank you.